want to send your kiddos out to uh, children's ministry. If you want to open your Bibles to the uh, book of Acts, we'll be in there uh, a little bit, Acts chapter 2. In fact, if you'll turn there quickly, let me read this before the introduction. Acts chapter 2, just let me read a few of the verses here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were, in, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Preaching expositionally in narrative scripture, which this is a narrative piece of scripture, which means this is a story. Preaching expositionally in a narrative piece of scripture, expositionally means just exposing the meaning of the text, exposing the intention of the text. This is hard to do because it is not like it just simply tells us clearly in the text what the point of this story is. And so uh, growing up in, in Bible land and learning how to preach and think about God's word, most guys will do their best to stay away from preaching a lot of narrative just because it's harder to understand. But I am dumber than most of those guys. As I've undertaken, uh, really only preached, uh, right, because of Luke and now Acts, only preached at this church narrative, uh, I began to realize, and I really probably need to give some explanation for why and how I preach the way I do in narrative texts. And the best way I can tell you is that, is that understanding what God is saying in a narrative text can feel a lot like listening to two lifelong friends talk in your presence. And they are speaking, and you understand a, a, a lot of what is said, but there are also just allusions to past events, shared histories, you know, inside jokes. And there are things like that going on in the conversation that you're not a part of because you haven't been their friend for as long as they've been friends. Reading and understanding 
narrative scripture in particular involves that sort of feeling. And so what we need to try to do, if we can, is to understand what's going on in the lives of these 120 people. What is their common history? What's going on in the lives of the first century Christians who would read what Luke is composed here through the Holy Spirit? And as we peel back that onion and try to understand what's happening there, we get some idea. And the best way I know how to do that is to go mostly back to the Old Testament because that was their Bible. And to seek to understand the shared history they were living in as it relates to their understanding of these events, all of which would be pointing back to the Old Testament. So let me segue from that to a story about my friend, Victor. Uh, We had just gotten to know each other, and we decided we needed to go to lunch, and uh, he had his Camry. Have you seen Victor's black Camry? That's the aspiration of everyone who immigrates to uh, to the United States, is is to become a citizen and buy a Camry. Uh, and Victor, and it's, welcome to America. Here's your Camry. Uh, Victor, uh, I, have a, I have a doctor friend who bought an Aston Martin. He's, he's from India. He bought an Aston Martin, and he called his mother on the phone, and she says, what have you been doing? He says, oh, I bought a car. She says, what kind of car? He says, an Aston Martin. And she begins to yell at him. And, uh, you know, this is just like you, to buy some junky car that no one's ever heard of. You should have bought a Camry. So Victor and I are in the Camry, and the Camry is very nice looking. Victor takes good care of his Camry, and he did a really good job negotiating the deal he got on his Camry, so he got all the extras. And this is before he was married, and, you know, he's like, this is going to be the date car, like, you know, because you have, you have leather seats, right, and you've got the wheels and the whole deal. And, uh, and so, and it's funny to see us drive together because size difference is pretty pronounced in a Camry both in seat position and anyway. But as we're driving to lunch, this car is running terribly. It's, it's, just, it's just running terribly. Uh, the wheels are out of alignment, and uh, the engine is stuttering, and it's kind of hiccuping through the gears. And I said to Victor, this car has the appearance of godliness, but denies the power thereof. Like, <laughs> Like, this, is, this car looks godly, but it ain't godly. And so uh, from that day forward, that's the name of that car. So we'll, as we're going somewhere, he'll say, are we taking the appearance of godliness? Or, well, and that's the inside joke uh, of, of Victor's car. The appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof, that's something Paul wrote, right, Timothy, that's probably, if you had to summarize the shared history of these 120 people, that's probably the best way I could sum it up. They had a shared history of form without function religion. They had a shared history, a shared national history. This is, what, this is the major plot line of the Old Testament, is form without function. Is the outer of, outside of the cup being clean and the inside of the cup being clean? dirty. The Pharisees in the gospel stand as sort of this summary, this living object lesson of this is what the law gets you, fellas, right? Whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, dirty on the inside. So if you were trying to nail down, well, what's the shared history of these 120 people? What's the shared cultural connection they have? This would be their primary 
pain point. This would be their primary frustration, and this would be their primary experience with religion, that it all is happening on the outside and on the inside, not so much. Now, Jesus, think of this, Jesus would have been so attractive to them because here was a man who had a high view of holiness. Jesus amped up the law's concern for holiness. He, 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 he you know, put it on steroids. Uh, so Jesus has this high view of holiness. But here's a man who I'm living with, and I see him talking to women, and I see him talking to poor people, and I see him talking to rich people. And this man with this high view of holiness is the only person I've ever seen that is living up to this high view. That would have been one of the first things that would have probably attracted them to Jesus as they had just gone through as good Jews, just, you know, this whole saga of form over function religion. And as they got to know Jesus more, they would have seen that this other piece of this puzzle, this other piece, this other thing he could do was he, not only could Jesus live up to his own standard of holiness, which was incredibly high, but that he was able to lift other people up to that standard of holiness too. And this is, I think, something to always bear in mind as you're working through the early pages of the book of Acts. This idea that these people had been awash in the law. The law was strong on moral imperative and utterly weak on moral empowerment. It was crystal clear on what they should be, and it did nothing to help them get there. Indeed, if anything, it provoked sin. That's the background of these people. This passage on Pentecost really needs to be cast in that light. This coming of the Holy Spirit as the helper, really, I don't want to move on until we're really set well in our understanding of how central this problem was to them, because I don't think it's just central to them. It's definitely central to me. And I would imagine that others find that it's central to them as well. Uh, we're going to be looking at our Bibles a lot, and the scriptures will be on the screen, but there'll be a lot of Bible, and you may want to pull your phone out or your Bible and, and read along. Uh, look at Romans chapter 7. Verse 18, this sense of uh, externalism, this, this uh, outside okay, inside disgusting, that's not an Old Testament thing. That's a, that's a right now thing. And I don't know where you were if, if you've read this passage of Scripture before. I don't know if you know where you were, if you remember where you were. I remember where I was. I was a teenage boy on my parents' back deck. And I was reading through the book of Romans in a brand new NIV student Bible that I just bought for the first time. And I read this passage and I thought that someone had snuck in to my room one night and written this about me while I wasn't looking. Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to tell you uh, something I'm learning. If that's not my regular experience... I'm just asking for it at so many levels. I'm so prone to pride. I'm so prone to forgetting my wretchedness that if this isn't my daily experience, my frequent experience, I'm just asking for it. I don't know. I don't know when the last time was that you read that and not said, yeah, that's true, but said, yes, that's me. That's me in this issue right here. That's me. That's me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I would just be clear. I don't know if there's any other honest take on my soul than this. Wretched man that I am, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to do things, and I don't do them. I don't want to do things, and I do them. The men in that room, the men and women in that room, that upper room, 120, just about what we've got here, those people and these people, us, are living in the shadow of the same primary problem. We have the form, and we lack the power. And then the Spirit comes. That's why Pentecost is so monumental. The coming of the Spirit is the empowerment of godliness. The coming of the Spirit is the empowerment of fruitfulness. There's this image of these 120 people in this room. And the text says that tongues of fire descended on their heads. You know, in Old Testament worship, in temple worship, candles were were very central, right? Um, the menorah, etc., lamps. You know, there's lots of thinking about menorah, lamps, etc. And what we're talking about when we're talking about these sorts of things is we're talking about oil lamps, right? And there's just this image that comes through in this moment where for the first time in a long time, people have something inside of them that's alive. People have something inside of them that's actually producing light. The spirit is the the, the oil that's taken up residence in the human vessel once again and allowed the human vessel to be what it was always supposed to be. And so uh, as I I work through this passage, what I really want to do is take at least two weeks, this one included, to walk through the Old Testament perspective on the spirit so that we can be even more appreciative of the Holy Spirit. So I, turn, I would ask you to turn to Genesis now, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, 
and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The man became a living creature. When did the man become a living creature? When he received the breath of God. John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the spirit is like the wind. You know, this idea of the spirit as the wind, so frequently in scripture, the word for wind is used. The word for breath is used for the spirit. In John chapter 20, you see a repeat of this Genesis moment. In John chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus uh, is raised from the dead. He goes out to his disciples and he breathes on them and says, advance forward. He breathes on them and says, uh, one more, receive the Holy Spirit. Breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So this idea of the breath of God as a, as a, a parallel to the Spirit of God, that's pretty strong. It's pretty strong in Scripture that there's this sense in which there, there's a human thing that's not truly human until it has the Spirit of God in it. It's not really animated until it has the Spirit of God in it. Uh, God, Think of it this way. God told them when they sinned, they would die. Right? What, what did life look like and where did life come from? Well, in our Genesis 2 text, life comes from, not from them being created, but from them being filled with the breath of God. So that there's some tension already developing in Genesis between sin and the enjoyment of the Holy Spirit. There's some tension already showing up there. This idea that the Spirit is our life is deeply rooted in Christian theology, Jesus says, unless you are born of the Spirit, you're not really alive. Again, John 3. And in Genesis 2, we have this early picture of this idea of being a lamp, but not having any oil. You know, of being a vessel, but not being alive. There's this great quote. I don't know how it's going to show up on the screen. Uh, I'm reading a book called Emmanuel in Our Place. Uh, it's about... Uh, Christ's presence in the Old Testament worship. <clears throat> Listen to this. The manner of creation of Adam the male illustrates his special place in God's universe. He was created from the dust of the ground. In other words, he is connected with the creation. Like the animals and the earth itself, he was a creature. So there's this, this we, are, we are creatures. We are created from the dirt. God made us from the dirt. But we're not alive because we're made from the dirt. He goes on to say, but there is more. He came to life when God breathed breath into his nostrils. And he had a special relationship with the creator. The creation process itself emphasizes humanity's glory as the very climax of God's work of creation. So, you know, identity is, I think, I, I, I talk, I say it's a slippery fish. You know, it's, it's, the more you press into understanding identity, I think the, the harder it is in many respects. You know, 
it's a kind of a Schrodinger's cat kind of a thing. You know, it's really hard to, to, to focus on identity and get anywhere. What I would do is to think about this. I am a creature made out of the dirt. I have a relationship with the earth. I'm, I'm a part of this created order. I'm, I'm like the animals, and I'm like the trees, and I'm, I'm, I'm like the dirt. But there's something special about me. I have this special connection to God because I'm not only dirt. I'm not even well-formed. I'm not only well-formed dirt. I'm dirt with God's breath on it. And that the most special thing about me and the core of my identity is who I am in Christ. Right? And, and this, sense, this, this, this sense of my uniqueness in this world has to do with Christ's contribution to my life, not anything else. As Robert Murray McShane uh, said, for every, every uh, one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. And you'll know more about yourself with that pattern than you would just by thinking only about yourself. So I want you to think about this idea that, that we've got empty lamps before Pentecost. We've got people who are formed, but they're powerless. There's a shape, but there's no spiritual power there. That's the basic idea behind religion without the gospel. That's the basic idea of religion without the gospel. Let's do some stuff that look a certain way. Let's do our very best to conform our exterior to a set of rules. We can't really do anything about how we feel, about what's going on inside of us. And so our sanctification marches along until we get rid of all the really gross sins. And then we park the sanctification car on the side of the road and wait for Jesus to come. Because we don't know how to get beyond mere behavioral modification. We don't know what to do with this wretched man inside of me. And that's because we need the Spirit. We need the Gospel. So, think of this idea of the empty lamp or the the, the well-formed human figure that's not alive, made out of dirt. And I just want to make a couple points about this. The first one is just this. Without the Spirit, we are animals. There's a, a, a very small but repeated reference in Scripture to being like a beast. And what it looks like as you trace this trail throughout the Scriptures, being like a beast means being stubborn, being prideful, uh, being un undisciplined, uh, being slow to, slow to conform. Uh, here's, here's how I've seen it as a pastor over the years, that without the Spirit, every person in this room will be both a predator and prey. Everybody in this room is both predator and prey. We all become animals without the Spirit. We are just creatures. We're just earthly, worldly creatures without the Spirit. And everybody in this room will be both predator and prey. We will be predator in the sense that we will be takers. We will be prey in the sense that we will be constantly afraid. So we're like some hybrid, I guess. But the idea is is that without the Spirit, we are what the Bible constantly refers to as worldly, earthly, carnal. Just, Just animals. 
In Daniel chapter 4, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, I think, is a microcosm of the fall of man. In Daniel chapter 4, the, the king of the world, like one of the most powerful kings of all time, Nebuchadnezzar, because he will not give glory to God, is transformed. Uh, transformed? I don't even know if that's the right word. He's animalized. He's turned into sort of a, a, a sheepish werewolf. As discipline for his pride, he is sent out into the field to be an animal. The king becomes an animal. That's exactly the story of the fall. We were created to be kings and queens in Christ, to rule and subdue, to fill this earth, to be fruitful and multiply. We were created to be kings, and we sold it all to be creatures following our glands as our guides and allowing our passions to become our prisons so that we can join with Paul in Romans 7 and say, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? So this sense that without the spirit, I'm an animal. And I don't mean that in any kind of cute, funny way. I'm a nasty, taking, skittish, afraid, falsely fierce, sheep led astray, half wolf, half sheep, hybrid mess. Without the spirit, we're beasts. And not in the way the kids use the term. Galatians 5.19. Listen to this animalism. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The animals aren't getting into heaven. The carnal beast men and women aren't getting into heaven. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's the alternative? How do we get out of this, this damned beast mode? Verse 22, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So this solution to this exteriorly somewhat impressive, interiorly disgusting state that we find ourselves in is that the Spirit comes and transforms us and begins to produce from the inside, outside, all of these beautiful things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And they begin to disrupt the idolatry and the sorcery and the enmity and the strife. And the inner man is transformed all because the Spirit came to make us people again. The people, people, like God wanted people to be. We, 
said repeatedly that this idea of being a wretched man who needs to be saved is a common experience. And I just hope that, that the next verse is, the next several verses are a common experience for you. Because what is the ultimate solution Paul lands on out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8? By the way, if you want to be a Romans 8 Christian, you have to be a Romans 7 person. If you want to be on the mountaintops, I think Romans 8 is pretty amazing. I'd love to be there. I want to be there. But I gotta, I, there's only one path. I've got to go through Romans 7 to get there. So how does Paul answer this, this sense of wretchedness? He says, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We become people again because the Spirit fills the lamp. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. There's no fruitfulness for those people. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Desert, sun-scorched land, death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life, beauty, harvest, fruitfulness. Harvest, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The fields come up for harvest. These barren wasteland hearts of ours start bearing the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit has been given to us. This moment in Pentecost, by the point that these folks were celebrating it, had become, uh, had become thought of as the, the, the celebration of the giving of the law. So remember how we said that Passover happens, and that's remembering, obviously, the creation of Israel, the, the setting, setting free of Israel from Egyptian slavery. And then Pentecost began to be the celebration that celebrated when Moses received the law. So imagine this. In their background, in their understanding of what's happening, Everybody around them is celebrating the receiving of the law. Can you think of how hollow that would feel after you just saw Jesus die and raised from the dead? Like how hollow some of this had to feel to them? So that everybody's, everybody's celebrating the receiving of the law, which, by the way, 
I think is the worst idea for a party ever. <laughs> like, like that's, that's a, there's a, there's a sermon illustration in there somewhere. I won't take time to develop it, but I mean, like, what are we, what do you have to celebrate? Like, that's nothing to celebrate. But every year they would come and they would celebrate the receiving of the law. And there's 120 people in a room by themselves who had just spent 10-ish days in prayer, whatever. And they are experiencing Ezekiel 36, 22 through 25. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness... Before their eyes. It's happening. Acts 2. It's happening. And I will take you from the nations. And gather you from all countries. And bring you into your own land. Jesus. That's the land there. I will bring you into your own land. The promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on you, fruitfulness. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being uh, the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say... This land that was become desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. I don't have to be an empty lamp anymore. I don't have to be a whitewashed tomb. The Spirit of God has come, and with it, freedom. And with that freedom, fruitfulness. I'm in the middle of being filled up. And so the the, the light flickers quite a bit. 
I have the Holy Spirit. I, I've received the Holy Spirit as, as God's gift to me because of Jesus' payment for me. But there's a progressive sense in which this is all still being worked out in my life and in your life. C.S. Lewis talks about, uh, about the problem of niceness toward the end of mere Christianity. And he talks about how, uh, in, in some ways, he wonders if a fully nice world wouldn't be harder to save than the world we have right now. And then he goes on to say, of course, we're not, the gospel is not about improvement. Christ came to make a whole new kind of man. I think he just came to make people again. The original recipe. No more of that new Coke. Christ came to make a new kind of man. He says, it's as if a horse is being given wings. As the wings are coming in, the horse looks worse (laughs) than if he didn't have wings at all. He's got these little nubs. But we all know, if we know what's happening, that this horse, this, this in the process of being winged horse, will one day beat a regular horse at all of its games. That's what it means to be given the Spirit of God. To be made into a new or made into an original recipe person. Full of the life that we were created to have. Full of the abundance we were created to have so that we can live in fruitfulness with our God. Let me pray.